Praise the Lord. It's good to be here, to be back home, and to be with you all. And just thank you for your love and prayers. So many of you shared with us during the time of loss of my mother recently. And just thank you for that. And we really felt the strength and help of all of that. Praise the Lord. If you have a Bible this morning, please turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Verse 12, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Amazing, amazing psalm, Psalm 22. It's David who's inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to write it. And he's writing of things that weren't yet even thought of. It's going to be a thousand years later that the Romans are going to institute execution by crucifixion. And yet here David has a picture of someone being crucified. But more than someone, it's Jesus. He sees the Lord. And in fact, the very first words of the psalm are those words spoken by Jesus from the cross. <clears throat> from the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's what I want to share with you this morning. The, the seven, there are seven sayings that Jesus spoke from the cross. Seven is always a significant number. It's the number of God. But seven sayings, we're just going to look at them and, and just share something of the impact of what they mean to us. And the first one is a word of forgiveness and is found in Luke chapter 23. Luke 23 and verse 30, 33 to 34. When they come to a place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You know, man had done his worst. Jesus betrayed, falsely tried, beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah prophesies and says his face is marred more than any other man. 
If that wasn't enough, they then take him and they fast him to whipping post and they beat him and whip him with those long uh, leather straps with bits of bone or metal and they just whip into his back. In fact, the, the psalmist prophesied that his back looked like a plowed field. And probably the only reason they stopped was because they were too embarrassed to carry on. Many people would die at the whipping post. Many people would confess anything to just get out of that torture. But Jesus endured that. And if that wasn't enough, they then try and humiliate him even more. They, 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 they make fun of him. They put a crown of thorns in his head. Some years ago, we were in Israel, in Jerusalem, and we saw the crown of thorns tree. And those thorns are a good one to two inches in length. And they thrust into his scalp. And mock him. And then he's taken and he's made to carry a cross. He's nailed that cross. And, and Psalm 22 describes the, in graphic pictures how that when they jerk that cross into position, it seems every bone is out of joint. Man did his worst. And in response to that, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Don't you find that amazing? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We stop and think of that. Let's sink into our hearts and minds, because it wasn't just the Romans or the Jews that they were responsible for Jesus being nailed to that cross. As already been mentioned this morning, it's my sin, your sin, our sin. Is why that happened. The forgiveness of God knows no limits, knows no bounds. The forgiveness of God reaches down to every one of us without exception. How? We need to get hold of that. We live in a world where there's so much troubles and difficulties where we get hurt. If we don't get hurt by other people, we can get hurt by ourselves. We can do things with the, oh, why did I do that for? And sometimes the hardest person to forgive is ourselves. But thank God there's an antidote, and that is Jesus. The forgiveness of our God that can reach down to whoever we are, whatever we've done. If we come with a heart of repentance and say, God, I'm really sorry. Oh, that forgiveness just wa washes into our lives and takes away and removes all oh, those filthy stains. Praise God for that. How we need to get hold of that. How we need to get hold of that in our lives. Because if we don't, then what happens is unforgiveness can take hold. In the hurts of life, unforgiveness can take hold. And if unforgiveness takes hold, then with it comes resentment and bitterness. And we become prisoners to unforgiveness. All over the years, I've seen people who've done just that. And it's such a sad, sad sight to see people who once were walking, living, and their lives seem so good. And then something happens, they get hurt. And instead of forgiveness, they tread the path of unforgiveness and their life is just crushed and ruined and, and destroyed by that. Nelson Mandela, the first black president of South Africa, he suffered a lot during the time of apartheid 
And in fact, he's put in prison. You think, how did he survive that? Such bad things were done to him, false accusations done to him. How did he get over that? He kept a forgiving heart. He kept a forgiving heart. In fact, Nelson Mandela writes this, unforgiveness is like drinking a cup of poison and expecting the other person to die. Think about it. <laughs> he says, Nelson Mandela says, unforgiveness is like drinking a cup of poison and then thinking the other person's going to die. <laughs> of course it doesn't work that way. But he kept a forgiving heart. Wow, and we look at that man when he, he obviously is such a statesman figure. What a figure. He kept forgiveness in his heart. We need to get to that place of forgiveness flowing in our lives. And you say, how do you do that? Come to the cross. Be overwhelmed by the cross, by the forgiveness of God. Ask the Holy Spirit then to help you. Lord, help me in my life to forgive. As you've heard me say before, then the next real test of whether it's working is to start praying blessing for those who hurt you. And when you can start praying blessing and mean it, you're getting the victory. You've got a forgiving heart. And if you're struggling, then go back, get overwhelmed by the cross, ask for God's help. Try again to pray blessing and keep going until you're absolutely free and, and you can do it with meaning. You've discovered the road of forgiveness. Oh, thank God. The first words spoken from the cross are words of forgiveness. The second words spoken from the cross, also found in Luke 23, are words of salvation. We read from verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow, what amazing words of salvation. You know, there's these two thieves, one on the other side of Jesus. Initially, in, Mar in Matthew's account, they both begin to just join with the crowds, mocking him, yeah, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're joining in and whatever. But then I believe one of the thieves, he hears those words we've just spoken about, those words, Father, forgive them. And suddenly he begins to see another side of things. Think this, wow, this man's done nothing amiss. This man truly is the Son of God. And then he just reaches out to Jesus. It's not your typical sinner's prayer, but then there isn't a typical sinner's prayer because you see, Jesus is looking for our hearts. He just wants a response from our hearts. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wow, here's this man, a, probably an insurrectionist, a thief, maybe a murderer. Certainly not your general temple-goer, synagogue-goer type person. 
As far as we know, no real religious background. Yet in his final moments of his life, just opens up his heart to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me. And Jesus doesn't say, I've got other things on my mind just at the moment. No, the Lord there on the cross says to him, assuredly, truly, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, I find that such a beautiful story. You know, it's not by our efforts. It's not by our works. It's not by our religious endeavors that we get right with God. It's by a simple heartfelt cry to a Savior. How important that is. You know, just a few weeks ago, we were on holiday in Greece. And because we've been back and forth this place, we were offered a few extra kind of benefit things. And one of them was to go on this tour for two hours, just to get to know something of the immediate locality of the resort where we go. And so, yeah, we'll do that. There was a bit of unchangeable weather for a couple of days. We'll make use of that time and do this tour. And so we have this, we're taking on this two-hour tour. And um, the man's name that was doing the driving the car and explaining things to us was called Vangelis. Interesting name because if you put an E in front and a T at the end, you have evangelist. So I thought, this is going to be interesting. And then he said, we hadn't been in the tour just about five, ten minutes. He said, you know this area that's been taken over by this resort and marina and everything else? He says, bought from the Greek Orthodox Church. And he says, in English, the meaning of this area before it was taken over means victory of the cross. I thought, victory of the cross? Yeah, this is going to be really good. And so we talked a little bit about that, and then he turns about different things and trees and the forest. But then he sees uh, a, one of the original Greek Orthodox churches in the area, and he says, Yeah. He says, I don't get this. He says, You know, he says, church people go there on a Sunday and say they're Christians, and they live any old way in the week. He says, I don't get that. Now that here's an opportunity. I says, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And then I say, it's about a personal relationship. It's, by, it's not our works, religious or otherwise. It's by a simple call upon God. Now we're able to begin to introduce a, 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 what real faith is about to this guy. <laughs> so... Remembering his name is Vangelis, which could be evangelist. He says, wow. He says, that's amazing. He said, I'm going to tell all my customers that in the future. So that, you know, if you ever hear in Greece, there's somebody going around saying, you don't go to church to become a Christian, no more than you go to McDonald's to become a hamburger. Wow. But it's true. Just a simple call. It's about a relationship. We see that at the cross. And then Jesus says, today you should be with me in paradise. Wow, what an amazing thing that is. To be absent from the body, present with the Lord. To be in heaven, to be in the presence of God. Wow, this is the hope of every Christian believer. You know, when we die, we go immediately into God's presence. 
What a beautiful thing this is. So that's the second word from the cross. The third word from the cross we find in, in John 19 is a word of affection. John 19 and verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And you're around the cross with these crowds of people mocking and baying and shouting out all kinds of things. But in the midst of it all, there's this one woman, Mary, mother. Can you imagine what she was going through? The distress, the, the heartache, the torment, the tears, the cries. The, just, this is so unfair, it's so unfair. He's done nothing amiss. Why, why is this happening? And, okay, she's been told back in Luke 2, yes, a spear will touch your own soul also. She'd been told there'd be things would happen. But, you know, when you're a mother and it's actually happening before your eyes, you don't think about that. You don't think, oh, you had a word back then. No, you, she's just there in the moment and you, you, you're upset and you're crying. And you just imagine that. And the crowds are totally indifferent to all of that. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. You know, Luke's touched on this so many times already this morning, but not Jesus. With all the hundreds and hundreds of people there, he looks to his mother and he sees that, you know, he's in the middle of his own suffering. But he sees his mother. He says, woman, behold your son. And then he looks at John, the disciple. Behold your mother, care for her, look after her. Wow, I found this so amazing. You know, because when we go through stuff, we think, well, we can, you could be in church this morning and everyone thinks, yeah, you look pretty good, you look pretty good, but you're going through things. And nobody else knows. But he knows. He knows, and he loves, and he cares. And he wants to minister to us. He wants to come and heal those broken hearts. He wants to come and minister to those troubled souls of ours. You know, it could be said, well, in three days' time, he's going to rise from the dead. So it's only going to be three days. But three days is when you're grieving and hurting and broken and tormented. In anguish, that's three long days. And Jesus says, John, you be with her. Don't you love that about Jesus? Just be with her, John. Comfort her and care for her. Wow. This helps me get out. I just see Jesus in new light as I think of those that experience. But then something else here too, which I've already touched on. In his suffering, he ministered to the suffering. In life we suffer, 
We go through suffering. But there's a real lesson here from Jesus. You know, we have a choice. We can go into a pity party. Oh, I'm suffering. Oh, please. Or we think, no, I'm going to, in the middle of my suffering, what can I do to minister out of suffering to others in suffering? That's the example of Jesus here. That's the example of Jesus. And I think in over 40 years of ministry, I think of people that I've gone to minister to, the pastor. Maybe, Luke, you've already had this experience as well. Where you go to minister to them, thinking you're going to go and you're going to read and share and encourage. And they're there, they're perhaps in a lot of pain. They're on a syringe driver to ease their pain with morphine and whatever. And, and, and you know, they're really struggling and no longer can eat. And they're just throwing sips of drink. It's pretty near the end. They're going through it. And you go there and you think, okay, I'm going to go and seek to minister to them. But oh, I can think of a number of people who, when I've gone to them in that situation, it's actually they who started ministering to me. As they began to speak positively about faith in God, about their Lord and the presence of the Lord. And, and suddenly you think, wow, I came to minister to you, but you're ministering to me. You're encouraging me. I think, wow, what, a, what an amazing example is that. May God help all of us to be like that. To follow the example of Jesus himself in suffering, to minister out of suffering to others. Praise the Lord. Let's come to the next word. It's a cry of anguish. It's what we read at the beginning of Psalm 22. And we find it in the Gospels in Matthew 27 and verse 45 and from 40, 45, 46. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. Have you ever thought for a moment that did Jesus really carry our sins on the cross? Well, if you did, here's the answer. This is the proof he did. That he, the holy, spotless, pure Son of God, took upon himself our sin. And in the moment that our sin was laid upon him, not only was there a physical darkness from 12 midday to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Bible tells us, but in that moment, it seems the Father turns his back on the Son because now the Son is taking the sin of the world upon himself. And is experiencing the wrath of God and the judgment for that sin. And the consequence of that is that Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words of anguish. We get a feel of this also in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus praying. He says, it, Luke says it was great, like drops of blood pouring from him. The intensity 
that he was going through caused his blood vessels to broken and, and blood to stain his sweat. And he says, my God, my Father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Wow. A word of anguish as he bore our sin upon the cross. But thank God it's not the final word from the cross. We'll come to that in a moment. It's not the final word from the cross. Let's move on. John 19, 28. A cry of suffering. A cry of suffering. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all all things are now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. Jesus said, I thirst. I thirst. Wow, we saw it there in Psalm 22. It says his his tongue was sticking to the roof of his mouth. No surprise when you think of the torture he'd been through. Then the whole thing about crucifixion. His body was in shock. It was dehydrated. This suffering that Jesus went through was real. That's what that tells me. And he was feeling it. It wasn't as if he was immune to it. He could over sort of blank it out. No, he was experiencing it. It was very, very real. You know, I thank God for this. I was sharing with some of my minister friends in a little text today. And I was sharing that, you know, recently I read a book by, I recommend you to read it by a, she works in Oxford University, Amy or Ewing is her name. She spoke at our Assemblies of God conference and she writes a book on suffering. And one of the, in a couple of places in the book, she does a little bit of comparative religion. And she says that Buddhism, you know, when Buddha in his palace, his wife was having a baby, he couldn't stand the suffering of it. He just laughed. He said, I want nothing to do with suffering. And Buddhism tries to meditate out of it. Hinduism, their view of suffering is, well, if you're suffering, it must be a bad karma, which what that means is you're getting punishment for something you did in a previous life. So that's not great. And then Islam is more fatalistic. Well, if God wills you to suffer, you suffer. Just tough, get on with it. And and for that matter, Islam can't understand how a God would come and suffer and die on a cross. The cross to them is an anathema. They can't say, no, it can't happen. God wouldn't do that. But thank God he did. Our God came. He came born in Bethlehem stable. Even now we see it. He He relates to the poorest of the poor. Before the age of two, a refugee. Our God comes. He understands us. We could spend time going right through his life and ministry. But we see it here at the cross, going through suffering. 
This uh, guy, Vangelis, I mentioned earlier, as we're driving along, we're just dropping in bits here and there. And um, he said, one thing I don't get, though, is suffering. I thought, wow. I said, Vangelis, there's no easy, simple answer. But what I can say is this. In Christianity, God shows us he understands suffering. Jesus suffered. Jesus went through suffering. He's able to come alongside us in our suffering. He's able to minister to us in our suffering. I said, yeah, and one day, suffering will all end because the Bible tells us there's a glorious day when Jesus will come again. There'll be a new heavens. There'll be a new earth. There'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. I said, wow. He says, that's an amazing answer. It was just part of the two hours of evangelism <laughs> with Van Gelis, the evangelist. <laughs> but, oh, thank God. I get so excited. When I was just thinking about that, and I thought, wow, Christianity. Yeah, God became one of us. God became flesh. The resurrection, yeah, that's amazing. Of course it is. Yes, we can call God Father, but, oh, the fact that God came alongside and suffered and suffered and doesn't tell us the full answer to suffering, but at least God understands us in it. I think, wow, what an amazing message we've got. Jesus said, I thirst. You know, I thirst. And they offered him vinegar, sour wine. They offered him vinegar. As I thought about that, I thought, thank God, when we cry out, I thirst, he doesn't give us vinegar. He gives us living water. Let him as a thirst come and take the water of life freely. He is thirsty. Come to me and drink, and out of your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. Thank God he doesn't give us vinegar. He gives us living water. Praise God. Praise God. Oh, let's come to the next. Well, it's not a cry, it's not a word, it's a shout. At a shout of victory. John 19 and verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. When you look at the other Gospels, you look in Matthew's account, and Matthew says he cried out with a loud voice. Oh, this wasn't just a weak cry, it is finished. No, it's a victor's cry. A victor's cry. Once for all time, for all sin. He's done it. The sacrifice is accepted. Hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Praise the Lord. Once for all time, for all people. For you, for me. There's no one excluded out of that. Praise God. I was reading recently a book of Hebrews. And I noticed in Hebrews 9 and 10, again and again, the writer says, once for all, once for all, once for all. Praise God. Praise God. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross to be remembered no more. That's not a scripture, that's a hymn. <laughs> but it's true. When Jesus Christ is finished, the temple veil was rent in two. Not from the bottom up. They said that was the work of man. No, from the top down. It's the hand, it's the finger of God. 
The veil is rent in two. Ah, oh, we have access now. We have access now into his glorious presence because of what Jesus did. Praise be to God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And if you say, well, could we absolutely sure? Yes, we can, because on the third day, God raised him from the dead. There's your proof. The resurrection is the final proof. Yes, it is finished. It's done. Oh, the grave clothes couldn't bind him. The tomb couldn't hold him. The soldiers couldn't stop him. Up from the grave he arose. Hallelujah. The risen Savior. He's victorious. He's victorious. The cry of victory. Praise God. Just one last cry, which follows very quickly from the one we just mentioned. It's, it's found in Luke 23. And verse 46, Luke 23 and verse 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, there it is again, a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Notice, it's back to my father. Father, into your hands. A little while before it was my God, my God. But it's back to Father. Oh, the relationship. The sacrifice is completed, accepted. It's back to a wonderful relationship, Father. And that is an indicator to us when we come to know Him. Is it, you know, Christianity isn't just about having your sin forgiven and God being merciful to us. No, no, it's far, far more. It means we can come into a relationship with God. And we can call him Father. Abba, Father. He sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. We've received the Spirit of adoption, not a bondage again to fear, whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. 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 And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Jesus breathed his last. You've heard me say it before. What really happened at that moment? Because death couldn't get Jesus. He's the son of God. He's the son of life. He had to allow himself to die. And the final act of Jesus was to allow his heart to break, literally break. Out comes blood. The blood then escapes into the cavity around the heart, the pericardium. When the soldier comes later to thrust a spear right up into his side. Out comes blood and water. Because after death, the blood was separated into two layers, a thick blood layer and the serum layer, the watery layer. Out came blood and water. Meaning Jesus, the actual physical cause of death, a broken heart. As Luke said earlier, God so loved the world. He gave us his only begotten son. Sorry, I memorized it in the New King James, not the, the uh, verse New Year's. <laughs> God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Wow. Love. He breathed His last. Wow. Amazing words from the cross. Words of forgiveness, words of salvation, affection, anguish, suffering. 
victory, contentment. What a savior.